This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Every year, hundreds, if not thousands of hopeful people flock to Hollywood, California in search of a dream. With stars in their eyes, aspiring actors, singers, dancers, comedians, and other entertainers all come with the same goal in mind, to become a Hollywood star. But actually succeeding in the ultra-competitive world of show business is extremely difficult, and actually attaining celebrity status is something only a very select few accomplish. Celebrities live in a world of wealth, fame, and privilege that most can't even imagine. We may observe their lifestyles with awe or envy, but their celebrity often comes with a price. The glare of the spotlight, constantly being critiqued for your performance, criticized for your personal life choices, and the never-ending pressure of pleasing the fans in order to maintain popularity can take its toll. So while sad, it's not too surprising when we occasionally see a once-promising star fall, either due to drug and or alcohol addiction, by becoming embroiled in a scandal, or even because they have committed a crime. But strangely, sometimes tragedy seems to be visited on several individuals within the cast of one production. Hollywood is a superstitious town, and when this happens, the show, movie, or franchise might receive the reputation of being cursed. In this series, Cursed Hollywood, I will share stories where several stars of one Hollywood production seem to fall under such a curse, losing their lives unexpectedly or tragically, succumbing to their addictions, becoming embroiled in career-ending scandals, or being involved in crimes. In this first chapter, three young stars of a breakout comedy hit of the 1980s all reached their height of popularity while still children, but their adult lives would not be lived as successfully. All three later experienced hardship, tragedy, and violence. These are the stories of Todd Bridges, Dana Plato, and Gary Coleman, and the different strokes curse. Different Strokes was a sitcom that debuted on American television on November 3, 1978. The show was created as a spin-off from the comedy Mod. Conrad Bain had co-starred in the series, starring B. Arthur, and when that series ended, network executives wanted to pair up Bain with a child actor they'd discovered, Gary Coleman. The series' premise was that Conrad Bain, playing Arthur Drummond, a wealthy widower, adopts two black children, the offspring of his recently deceased housekeeper. Gary Coleman plays the part of Arnold Jackson, and Todd Bridges was cast as his older brother Willis. Mr. Drummond also has a teenage daughter named Kimberly, played by Dana Plato. Rounding out the cast was Drummond's new housekeeper, Edna Garrett, played by Charlotte Ray. Gary Coleman became the breakout star of the series. A chubby-cheeked little cutie, Gary Coleman delivered his famous line, What you talking about, Willis? in many episodes. Willis, of course, was his older brother who often had to school his younger sibling on the ways of the new, privileged world they now found themselves in. The series followed the antics and adventures of the boys as they learned to navigate family life as black children living in a white adoptive family and moving from their apartment in Harlem to a penthouse on Park Avenue. The series ran for eight seasons between 1978 and 1986. It was an instant hit never falling out of the top 30 shows on television in its first three seasons. 
its young actors became childhood stars, gracing the covers of TV Guide, People, and other entertainment magazines. Gary Coleman reportedly received over $70,000 per episode at the peak of his popularity. But the combination of fame and money at such a young age caused a variety of troubles for Todd Bridges, Dana Plato, and Gary Coleman. Todd Anthony Bridges grew up in a show business family. He was born in 1965 in San Francisco, California. His mother, Betty Pryor, was an actor, director, manager, and renowned acting coach. His father, James Bridges, was one of the very first prominent African-American Hollywood agents. Todd's siblings, Jimmy and Verda, were also actors, as were several of his nieces. But Bridges says his parents never pushed him into acting. He'd always wanted to be an actor. One of his first inspirations was seeing Red Fox on television, starring in Sanford and Son. Seeing an African-American starring in his own successful television show inspired Bridges towards a career as an actor. By the age of six, Bridges had moved with his family to Los Angeles. He started auditioning soon after. His first break was a Jell-O commercial that featured both Todd, his parents, and siblings. He would appear in over 60 commercials. By the time he was eight years old, he began appearing in television series like The Young and the Restless, Barney Miller, and Police Story, and became a reoccurring character on Little House on the Prairie at the age of 11. He also won the role of Chicken George's grandson in the blockbuster miniseries Roots in 1977. While Todd Bridges was now a successful actor, his home life was not happy. His father was an alcoholic who was cold and distant with his family. He was also angry and abusive towards his children. Bridges was close to his mother Betty, who he describes as a strong woman of faith. He would report that his role model of a good man and a loving father was not James Bridges, but Conrad Bain, his TV father. At the age of 11, Bridges was sexually abused by his publicist, who was also a family friend. He would later say that burying the pain of the abuse he'd suffered as a child would lead him to make many bad decisions affecting his life greatly. He also was confused for a time about his sexuality, since his abuser had been male. Like many boys who are abused by men as children, he struggled with his sexual identity, trying to understand if he was heterosexual or not. He would have a brief sexual relationship with his co-star Dana Plato as a teen, and said this convinced him that he was not a homosexual. While Todd Bridges was at the height of his celebrity in the early 1980s, he was also a black teenager living in Los Angeles. Bridges says he was often pulled over and harassed by police. He believed he was targeted because he was a wealthy black teen. He reports being subjected to racism and abuse by cops. It made him angry, and he grew to hate police officers. After Different Strokes was canceled in 1986, Bridges had trouble finding acting work. According to IMDb.com, he landed only three small roles on television until the early 1990s. Bridges had worked consistently since he was six years old, and now he was drifting. It was at this time that he became addicted to drugs. He admits to smoking marijuana as a teen, but his first introduction to harder drugs began at the age of 21. It started with cocaine, and then he graduated to crack cocaine and methamphetamines. He began dealing drugs to finance his habit. It seems that Bridges' anger towards the cops, frustration at being unemployed, and his drug use 
all combined to bring out the worst in him. He started getting into frequent scrapes with the law. In 1987, he was arrested for armed robbery after pulling a gun on a mechanic who demanded payment of $500 for repairing Bridges' BMW. The charges were later dropped when a witness said she could not say for sure if the actor had been the gunman. He also received a suspended sentence in 1987 for making a bomb threat against another auto worker. The following year, he was arrested for reckless driving. But all these incidents were relatively minor compared to an incident involving the 23-year-old in 1989. By this time, Bridges says he was using 14 grams of cocaine a day. On February 2nd of that year, he had been on a cocaine bender for four days when he visited a known South Central Los Angeles crack den. He got into an altercation with a drug dealer and shot the man eight times. Miraculously, he survived. Bridges was arrested and charged with attempted murder, carrying a concealed weapon, and possession of cocaine. His bail was set at $2 million. He had the good fortune to land Johnny Cochran as his defense attorney. Cochran, of course, would go on to famously defend O.J. Simpson, winning the ex-NFL football player an acquittal on a double murder charge in 1995. Cochran presented his client Todd Bridges to the jury as a babe in the woods, who had turned to drugs to cope with personal problems. Bridges would testify that he was so high on cocaine, he didn't even remember firing the gun. Perhaps more sympathetic to a childhood star than an alleged crack dealer, the jury acquitted Bridges. But Bridges continued to abuse drugs and was arrested once again in December of 1992. This time, as he saw the lights from the police car behind him, Bridges felt so hopeless that he considered, as he calls it, committing suicide by cop. I was worn out, he wrote in his memoir, Killing Willis, published in 2010. It had been a long time coming. I'd been using and dealing on and off for six years, and even though I'd been trying to get my act cleaned up, it clearly wasn't working. I decided to give the cops what I knew they wanted, the chance to say they'd taken down Todd Bridges, the former child star turned drug dealer, whether they got me with bullets or with bars. Bridges was arrested, and fate dealt him a lucky hand one more time, when the judge who would decide his fate had also battled a drug addiction. The judge told Bridges he had promise and urged him to clean up his act. This judge didn't give him a pass, but instead sent him to prison for 90 days and said to use the time to reflect on the need to turn his life around. Bridges, perhaps grateful for a man who saw him as worthy and not worthless as his father had treated him, heeded the judge's advice. After being released from prison, he checked into a year-long drug treatment program. While he had a few more setbacks before becoming clean and sober, by the late 1990s, Bridges had his life back on track. He married Dory Smith in 1998, and they had a son together, Spencer. Spencer would follow in his father's footsteps, becoming a child actor as well. He would appear in the movie Daddy Day Camp. Bridges also has a daughter, Bo, from a previous relationship. In 2010, Todd Bridges released his memoir, Killing Willis, and went on several shows to promote the book. When he appeared on Oprah's television program, Where Are They Now?, he shared details from the new book, including his sexual molestation at the age of 11 and his drug addiction. He also shared the story of how his mother, Betty, found out about the sexual abuse. The man had showed up at their house, and suddenly Todd attacked him. I was so angry and in so much pain that when I saw him, I just jumped on him, Bridges said. His mother pulled him off, 
and Todd told her what the man had been doing to him. She drove the man out of the house with a knife. Betty took the news to Todd's father, but James didn't believe his son. That really destroyed me, because my father was supposed to be my protector, he told Oprah. He didn't protect me. He allowed this man to do this to me, and he didn't help me. That was my breaking point. He only later connected his dependence on drugs as a way to mask the pain of his childhood. He credits three things with helping him become clean and sober and turn his life around. First, he credits his mother, Betty, who had always been his strongest supporter. Todd had refused to see his family during the worst of his drug addiction, but his mother had never given up on him, and the two grew close once again. Secondly, his television father, Conrad Bain, remained his mentor and role model. With his example, Bridges set out to become the best father he could be to his own children. He showered them with love and protected them with his life, two things he had not received from his own father. Bain often told him how proud he was of the man he'd become and praised him for being a great dad to Bo and Spencer. Finally, his love for his kids gave him a second chance at life. More than anything, he wanted to be a good man and raise a happy family. In that, he succeeded. Bridges would travel the country speaking about his experiences as a way to help others who'd experienced sexual abuse or drug addiction. He wanted to inspire others to take control of their lives and let them know that they could also find healing from the pain of sexual abuse. Bridges says he was surprised and honored to hear World Welterweight Championship boxer Sugar Ray Leonard say that it was his story that gave him the courage to reveal his own sexual abuse as a young boxer. Leonard has since gone on to advocate for other victims of childhood sexual abuse. Todd Bridges has remained clean and sober and is still a working actor. He played a reoccurring character in the Chris Rock-produced television series Everybody Hates Chris. He currently has several projects in post-production and, as of this writing, is filming the television series Roommates on Elm Street. He and his wife Dory divorced in 2012 after 14 years of marriage, but remain friends. Dana Michelle Plato was born in Maywood, California, on November 7, 1964. Ironically, she would play the biological daughter of Philip Drummond on different strokes with two adopted brothers. But in reality, Dana herself was placed for adoption at the age of seven months. Her birth mother, Linda Strain, was 16 years old and unwed when she gave birth to her second child, Dana. Already struggling to raise an 18-month-old baby, Linda decided to place Dana with a family who could better care for her. Her adoptive parents, Dean and Kay Plato, raised Dana in Los Angeles. Dana's childhood dream was to become a figure skater, but at the age of seven, she began auditioning for television commercials. Her sandy blonde hair, freckles, and girl-next-door looks made her popular with casting agents, and she appeared in over 100 commercials over the next few years. Dana's parents divorced when she was four. Her father essentially dropped out of her life, only re-emerging later on when Dana was a successful actor, to sue her for support. In 1973, at the age of nine, Dana almost got her big Hollywood break when she was offered the role of Reagan in the upcoming film The Exorcist. But her mother Kay would not allow her daughter to appear in a movie that revolved around the satanic possession of a young girl. Linda Blair was cast instead and became one of the biggest stars of the 1970s as a result. Instead, Dana had to settle for a role in a forgettable television movie, Beyond the Bermuda Triangle. She auditioned for the role of Princess Leia in 1977, 
but did not get it, of course. She was given a small part in the movie Exorcist II, The Heretic, but the sequel to the blockbuster movie was later voted as one of the worst films of all time. A second shot at stardom was presented to Dana when, for the second time, she was offered a plum movie role. This time, she was offered the part of Violet in the 1978 film Pretty Baby. Again, her mother-slash-agent turned down the role, not wanting Dana to be typecast in the role of a teenage prostitute. Brooke Shields would go on to star as Violet, a role that made her a superstar. Dana continued to work as an actor in small roles, but finally received her big break when she was cast in the role of Kimberly Drummond on Different Strokes in 1978. At first, she was only expected to have a small part. Kimberly was supposed to be a student at a private boarding school to appear only occasionally on the show, but she quickly became a favorite of viewers and her role was expanded. Along with Todd Bridges and Gary Coleman, she emerged as one of the most popular child actors on television in the 1980s. Unlike her squeaky clean image as Kimberly Drummond, when Dana joined the cast of Different Strokes, she was 14 years old and already a frequent drug user. She later admitted to smoking marijuana and snorting cocaine. At the age of 14, she suffered an accidental overdose of diazepam, commonly known as Valium. By the age of 15, she was showing up on the set drunk. Dana also played Kimberly Drummond on two other television shows spun off from different strokes, Hello Larry and The Facts of Life. The Facts of Life was created to star Charlotte Ray as Edna Garrett, who was said to have left the Drummonds to take the job as a house mother at a private girls' school. The show became a top-rated sitcom, launching the careers of other child actors, including Molly Ringwald, Lisa Welchel, Kim Fields, Mindy Cohn, and Nancy McKeon. In 1983, Dana Plato began dating songwriter and rock guitarist Lanny Lambert. In April 1984, the couple wed, and three months later, their son Tyler Edward Lambert was born. At first, the pregnancy was to be written into the show, but the producers decided that Kimberly Drummond's character didn't allow for that plot line. Dana was only 18 years old at the time of her pregnancy, and they didn't want to portray her as such a young mother. Instead, she was written out of the show after the 1983-84 season. Her absence was explained away as Kimberly going off to study in Paris. Conrad Bain would later say that Dana's recklessness concerned him. She had gotten pregnant on purpose because, as she explained to him, after I have the baby, I'll never be alone. She was written off the show, producers said, because of her pregnancy. But the truth was, she had long been a problem on the set due to her substance abuse. New cast members were introduced into the series. A storyline was created with Philip Drummond meeting and marrying a divorcee named Maggie, played by Dixie Carter. She brought along with her a young son named Danny to reinvigorate the show with younger actors. Dana returned for the season finale, as well as to make some guest appearances in the final two seasons of the show before it was canceled in 1986. She had trouble landing any acting roles over the next couple of years, and 1988 was a difficult year for the young actress. Her mother Kay died of a blood disease at the beginning of the year, and soon after that, she and her husband separated. They would divorce in 1990. When the divorce was final, Lanny was awarded full physical custody of Tyler, but Dana was given visitation rights. Some reported that Dana's drug use kept her from working in Hollywood. She was unsuccessful in finding work. 
Although she had been paid a large salary, reportedly around $23,000 per episode by the time she left Different Strokes, she was now broke. Without a paycheck coming in, Dana decided to accept an offer to be photographed nude for Playboy magazine. Along with needing the money, Dana hoped it might relaunch her career. She believed that being typecast as Kimberly Drummond was now affecting her ability to work as an adult actress. However, no new acting jobs were forthcoming, and by 1991, she'd only been offered one small part in a movie in almost five years. She was growing desperate. To make ends meet, Dana took a counter job at a dry cleaners in Las Vegas. She was now living with a boyfriend in a low-rent apartment. The couple didn't have enough money to pay their $550 a month rent, which was due the following day. So on February 28th, Dana applied for a $6 an hour job as a janitor in her apartment building, but wasn't hired. After being turned down for the job, she attempted to disguise herself with a black hat and large sunglasses. Brandishing a pellet gun, she walked into a local video store and pointed it at the clerk, demanding all the money in the register. She was handed $164, the total in the till, and she ran out. But disguised or not, the clerk, Heather Daly, recognized Dana. She called 911, saying, I've just been robbed by the girl who played Kimberly on different strokes. Dana Plato was arrested for the armed robbery of a Las Vegas video store. She spent five days in jail before appearing in court and being sentenced to five years probation. Legendary Las Vegas singer Wayne Newton, who had also been a child star, posted the $13,000 bail money for Dana. She made some money selling her story of hardship to a tabloid. And as they say in Hollywood, no publicity is bad publicity. After her arrest, Dana began picking up acting jobs again. They were just small parts in forgettable films, but it was work. Dana was arrested again the following year for forging a prescription for Valium. Since she was still on parole, she served 30 days in jail for this infraction. In 1993, she entered drug and alcohol rehab in Las Vegas. She would attempt to get clean several times over the next few years. In 1995, Dana appeared in a handful of roles, including a stage play titled Last of the Red Hot Lovers. Critics said that Dana Plato was a fairly competent actress, and the reviews were good, if not great, for the play. Dana Plato had matured from a fresh-faced girl to a striking and even beautiful young woman. She sometimes capitalized on her good looks to further her career, like the Playboy spread, but also in more risque movie roles like Bikini Beach Race, where she played the main character, quote, the saucy J.D., a hydroplane speedboat pilot who's cajoled by four college oddballs into joining their bed race team, unquote, as summarized on imdb.com. She was also featured in a 1992 video game called Night Trap. In it, she plays a scantily clad victim. In the early 1990s, video game creators were starting to feature known actors and entertainers in their games. B-list actors were more affordable. Those who had once been uber-famous and were now down on their luck, like Dana, were the most affordable. Gary Coleman would also be featured in video games in the 1990s. Acting jobs were still scarce, and in 1997... Dana agreed to star in a softcore straight-to-video movie called, what else, Different Strokes. The subtitle of the movie was Jack and Jill and Jill. In it, she plays a bisexual woman. In a 1998 magazine interview, Dana came out as a lesbian. However, she would later say that she was neither straight nor gay, 
explaining, quote, In my opinion, it's not about gay or straight or bi. We're attracted to spirits, whatever body they're in. I'm open-minded. I don't consider myself gay or hetero. I just am. I've had experiences all over the planet, but it always comes down to just me. But I think at this point, if I had an ongoing relationship, I believe it would be with a man, unquote. In 1999, Dana entered into a romance with her 28-year-old manager, Robert Menchaca. The couple was residing in an RV park in Florida. She landed a starring role in a horror film titled Silent Scream. She was very excited about jumpstarting her career once more when she was invited on the Howard Stern radio show. The live show was aired on May 7, 1999. During her interview, she announced her engagement to Robert Menchaca, her manager, who she'd only known for a few weeks. She openly spoke about her drug use, her crimes, and time spent behind bars. She talked about her acting comeback and said she'd been sober for more than a decade. Stern opened up the phone lines to listeners, and the interview took a negative turn. Callers accused her of being high at that moment and insulted her and her career. Dana began arguing with the callers and finally offered to take a drug test right then and there. Stern defended Dana, but continued to take listener calls even after it was clear that they enjoyed baiting his guest, and she was obviously in distress. She broke down in tears while live on the radio. Before the end of the interview, Dana allowed Stern's producer to cut off a piece of her hair to be used for drug testing. Stern would later say that she asked for it back before leaving the studio. Dana was upset about the interview and how she was treated by Stern's fans. She'd hoped that her career was getting back on track, and now she must have wondered if her past would continue to haunt her. However, she was looking forward to seeing her son. She and Menchaca left New York after the interview to drive across the country in their RV. They planned to stop in Oklahoma to visit Menchaca's family, and then on to California where she would spend Mother's Day with Tyler. On Saturday, May 8th, Dana and Menchaca reached Moore, Oklahoma, and parked their RV in front of his mother's house. While he stayed inside the house to visit his mother, Dana went out to the RV to take a nap. When Menchaca returned to the RV later, Dana was still asleep. He noticed that she was cold and sweating. He covered her with a blanket and fell asleep. Sometime later, when he awoke, he couldn't wake Dana. He ran to get his mother, who was a nurse. Something's wrong with Dana, he said. Marcella Menchaca ran over, and finding her not breathing, started CPR. An ambulance was called, but Dana Plato was announced dead soon after. She was 34 years old. The medical examiner determined that she had died from ingesting a lethal combination of Lortab, a pain medication, and Carisoprodol, a muscle relaxant. At first, an accidental overdose was suspected, but when the medical examiner concluded the autopsy, he found that Dana had seven Carisoprodol tablets in her stomach. Too many to have been taken accidentally, he concluded. He ruled her death a suicide. Dana's son, Tyler Lambert, only 14 years old when his mother died, would tragically take his own life as well. Tyler aspired to be in show business like his mother, but also like her, he struggled with drugs and alcohol. He missed his mother terribly after her death. Although he was mostly raised by his paternal grandmother, he was emotionally very close to his mother. In 2006, when he was 22 years old, Tyler would attempt to sue Robert Menchaca for his mother's death. The civil suit would accuse him of contributing to Dana Plato's death by, quote, not giving immediate medical assistance 
or contacting medical personnel, unquote. He was seeking $20,000 in damages, claiming the loss of companionship, affection, love, and aid in maintaining a normal life. Tyler was quoted as saying that he'd never believed his mother had taken her own life. Tyler also suffered from depression, and the time leading up to Mother's Day each year was particularly hard for him. He often told friends he, quote, just wanted to be with mom, unquote. Two days before the 11th anniversary of his mother's death, on May 6, 2010, he killed himself by a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. He was 26 years old. Friends said he didn't want to spend one more Mother's Day without his mom. Gary Coleman became one of the most recognizable television stars of the 1980s. But the reason he was discovered and even given a shot at stardom would become the main source of his unhappiness later on. Like his television character Arnold Jackson, Gary Coleman was also adopted. Born on February 8, 1968, Coleman was adopted by W.G. Willie Coleman and Edmonia Sue Coleman when he was four days old. They brought their new son home from a Chicago hospital to Zion, Illinois. When Gary was 18 months old, he was diagnosed with a congenital kidney disease. Doctors told the Colemans that he'd been born with one atrophied kidney and that his second kidney was failing. Gary underwent several surgeries, including his first kidney transplant, before he was five years old. Because of his medical condition, he was required to take several medications. A side effect of some of these life-saving drugs was that his growth was severely stunted and he would forever look much younger than his true age. He possessed a childlike appearance because of his short stature, he'd only reached the height of 4 foot 8 inches tall, and his chubby cheeks. This feature was thought to be a side effect of the steroids he was required to take to ward off rejection of the kidney transplant. Gary Coleman was a cute and precocious child. His mother entered him in the children's fashion show at a mall near their home. A manager at the mall thought the cute little boy had talent and gave his mother the contact information for a children's talent agency. Before long, Gary was auditioning for television commercials. Commercials for Montgomery Wards, Betty Crocker, and McDonald's led to parts on television shows, including Medical Center. A scout for television producer Norman Lear saw Gary at an audition for a pilot of a new Little Rascals television show. Gary won the part of Stymie, but the pilot wasn't picked up. Lear offered the young actor $1,000 a month on retainer and placed him in guest spots on his top-rated television shows The Jeffersons and Good Times. Coleman was 10 when Lear made him a star by casting him as the 8-year-old Arnold Jackson in different strokes. Arnold was supposed to be 8, but could have passed for 6. Coleman's small size and his wise-beyond-his-years personality, coupled with his comedic timing, earned him accolades from even showbiz greats. He was praised by comedy legends Bob Hope and Lucille Ball and had the honor of being asked to appear on The Johnny Carson Show. Norman Lear was quoted in TV Guide saying that Gary Coleman possessed a rare presence that gave him his star power. Many important actors, even stars, don't have it, he gushed. Gary does. As Different Strokes became a hit, Arnold Jackson's chubby cheeks were plastered over T-shirts, magazine covers, and even on Arnold Jackson dolls. As his popularity grew, so did his paycheck. He became one of the most well-paid child actors in the history of television up until that time. During the late 1970s and early 80s, Gary Coleman reportedly earned around $18 million from the show, 
merchandising, other television appearances, and two feature films. He even starred in a short-lived animated series called The Gary Coleman Show. But while it earned him millions, Coleman hated his small size and childlike looks. He grew up on different strokes, the series ending when he was 18. But the show began to lose viewers when Arnold Jackson entered high school. Television viewers didn't see Coleman as a teen or young man, but still as a child, and they didn't buy into the premise of the pint-sized star navigating teenage troubles. After Different Strokes was canceled, Coleman continued to be typecast as the young Arnold Jackson or the child star Gary Coleman. Most acting credits between 1986 and 1996 had Gary Coleman playing himself on shows like The Ben Stiller Show and The Wayans Brothers. He even revived his old role as Arnold Jackson Drummond on an episode of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air in 1996. Coleman continued to suffer from health issues due to his kidney disease and underwent a second transplant in 1984. He was frequently required to undergo dialysis as well. According to Todd Bridges, Coleman was made to work long hours on the show, which contributed to his health issues. He became ill and depressed and often isolated himself from the rest of the cast. Not making the big paychecks that he once was, Coleman took a closer look into his finances to plan for his future. He was shocked to learn that a large portion of his money was gone. He was even more shocked to learn that his parents and manager had siphoned off a significant amount of his earnings over the years. In 1989, he sued his parents, Willie and Sue Coleman, and his business manager, Anita DeThomas, for allegedly stealing more than $1 million from him. The Colemans and DeThomas countersued for defamation and breach of contract. Coleman became estranged from his parents, and the lawsuit dragged on for several years. The suit was finally settled in 1993, and he was awarded $1.28 million. The judge ruled that his parents and his manager had wrongfully profited as his guardians and manager during the time he'd been a minor. Coleman continued to work now and then, but it was harder for him to earn a living as an actor, and he certainly wasn't receiving big paychecks anymore. His star had fallen greatly. He ended up filing bankruptcy in 1999. Coleman frequently complained about being typecast and also about being disrespected due to his size. Fans would come up to him and ask for his autograph, and more than a few would also ask to pick him up, or even do so without asking. His mother would say that he'd hated it when the other kids in school treated him like a baby. He was still being treated like a baby, but now he was a full-grown man. Broke and frustrated about his career, Gary Coleman's anger began to get the better of him. He was no longer an A-list celebrity, but he was still very recognizable. While working as a security guard in 1998, a woman approached him asking for an autograph. The encounter somehow got out of hand, and Coleman ended up punching the woman. He was charged with assault. He explained that the woman was much larger than him and had come at him aggressively. He said he felt threatened and had reacted out of fear. He was fined by the court in order to undergo anger management classes. In 2007, he got into another altercation with a man who tried to take his picture. An argument ensued. Coleman got into his truck and backed it into the man before leaving. The man suffered minor injuries, and Coleman was charged with disorderly conduct and reckless driving. He pled no contest and was fined $100. Through the early 2000s, Coleman continued to act in small parts on television. 
In 2007, he married Shannon Price, but their relationship was turbulent, with both being charged with domestic violence several times. He was now residing in Utah, and during the first years of his marriage to Price, he received a disorderly conduct citation in Provo when the couple was observed having a loud argument in public. Two years later, Price was arrested on suspicion of domestic violence when Coleman called the police on her. The couple even appeared together on the television show Divorce Court in 2008, but instead of divorcing, they decided to try and work on their relationship. They would divorce, but continued to see each other and even live together at times. In January 2010, Coleman was arrested on a domestic violence assault warrant for another incident with Shannon Price. He was fined $595 and ordered to take domestic violence classes. Coleman's manager would report that he was sometimes lax in taking his medication or undergoing dialysis as necessary. In January and February of 2010, Coleman's health declined and he began experiencing seizures, one occurring on the set of the television show The Insider. On Wednesday, May 26, 2010, Coleman was at his home near Salt Lake City, Utah, when he fell down the stairs and suffered a head injury and fell unconscious. He was taken to Utah Valley Regional Medical Center in Provo. A hospital spokesperson said that he was conscious and lucid the following morning, but his condition began to decline throughout the day. By the following day, he was unconscious and on life support. On Friday, May 28th, Shannon Price gave permission for doctors to remove him from life support, and he was pronounced dead at 1.05 p.m. He was 42 years old. No funeral service was scheduled, according to Coleman's wishes. Coleman's parents, his ex-wife Shannon Price, and his business manager, Dion Mile, argued over who should control his estate. When it was pointed out that Price and Coleman were no longer married, some began to speculate whether she had the legal rights to authorize Coleman to be taken off life support. Rumors had already begun as to whether Coleman had died from injuries sustained in an accidental fall or if Price had contributed to his death. While it's very possible that he fell as a result of another seizure, this was never claimed by either Price or her father, who was present on the day Coleman was injured. The medical examiner concluded that Coleman had died from an epidural hematoma, or bleeding, in the brain. An investigation was concluded in which it was determined that the injuries were consistent with a fall down the stairs, and his death was ruled accidental. As for rumors that Shannon Price wanted Coleman dead and facilitated his passing to gain his estate, if she had pushed him down the stairs or otherwise injured him, he would have been able to say so during the time he was conscious, as reported. He never claimed such a thing. The hospital also issued a statement to confirm that Coleman had completed an advanced care directive, giving Price permission to make medical decisions on his behalf. As for his estate, Coleman's final will, executed in 2005, named Anna Gray, a business associate and friend, as his executor, and willed his entire estate to her. Price disputed the will and petitioned the court to turn Coleman's assets over to her as his spouse. She claimed that legally she was his common-law wife. To meet this requirement, she said that they jointly held assets such as shared bank accounts and lived publicly as husband and wife up until his death. However, the court ruled that their relationship did not meet the standards for common-law marriage. There is simply insufficient credible evidence to conclude that they were more than occasional roommates, the judge wrote in his ruling. Witnesses testified that Price and Coleman's relationship was no longer sexual, 
and that they slept in separate bedrooms, and that Coleman had prohibited his ex from entering his house for a significant portion of the year preceding his death. Witnesses also stated that Price was publicly abusive to Coleman, saying she would lead him around by the hand like a child to humiliate him. Finally, it was reported that Price carried on sexual relationships with other men, and this was commonly known by others, including Coleman. Anna Gray was awarded the estate, as per Coleman's wishes. She later reported that there was very little money in his bank accounts upon his death, and his house was foreclosed on soon after his passing. She had known that there was no estate to speak of, but explained that she simply wanted to be made executor of his will to honor his last wishes. He requested to have his remains cremated and his ashes scattered, while his parents were trying to arrange a burial. She also wanted to, as she said, stop his continued mistreatment by his family, ex-wife, and business managers. Gray thought it was very important that Gary Coleman's name not be exploited and only be used for projects he would approve of. It is unknown if his ashes were scattered or in which location. Three child stars from one hit television show live lives of trouble, hardship, and tragedy. Was it a curse? Perhaps, but I think it was a specific type of curse found only in Hollywood. The curse of these three young stars was one feared by many actors, being typecast in one type of role or as one character. The irony is that the more famous or popular the character becomes, the harder it is to break out of that mold as an actor. When this happens, it can be very difficult for an actor to find new work. They find themselves limited to only certain roles, or if they refuse to play the same character, no roles at all. Dana Plato couldn't shake her good girl image, even after posing for Playboy. She could no longer be cast as the girl next door. She'd grown up and become a woman and wanted grown-up roles, but was typecast as the fresh-faced young girl that had made her a star. Even her armed robbery victims still identified her by her character, Kimberly Drummond. With her opportunities drying up, she ended up working minimum wage jobs to make ends meet and sank deeper into her drug addiction. Todd Bridges' fall from stardom was a big disappointment to him, as acting was the only thing he'd ever wanted to do. He had also had trouble finding work as an actor. In addition, the pain he still carried around with him from being sexually abused as a child led to his increased drug use, which further derailed his career for a decade. Gary Coleman found a way to turn the lemon that was his medical condition into lemonade by capitalizing on his small stature as a child star. However, when he was ready to enter the adult world, no one would give him a chance or allow him to be anything other than Arnold Jackson, the cute kid. I want to escape that legacy of Arnold Jackson, Coleman told the New York Times in 2003. I'm someone more. It would be nice if the world thought of me as something more. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, you can reach out for help at suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Victims of sexual abuse can get help and resources at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot org. And for those who need help for substance abuse, log on to drughelpline.org. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Come back again next week to hear another tale of a cursed Hollywood production. 
you can support the show on Patreon and get access to additional content. I've just shared two more bonus episodes, two more true crime cases you won't hear about on the main feed. You can only get them by going to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime and becoming a member for just $2 or more a month. You will also get sneak peeks into upcoming series, exclusive gifts, and more. Don't forget to subscribe to my other podcast, Let's Talk About True Crime, to hear me and a special guest host discuss the hottest true crime cases, documentaries, and films currently trending. I recently released an episode discussing the Gypsy and Dee Dee Blanchard case, as portrayed in the miniseries The Act. Coming up this week, on Thursday, I'll be releasing episode number seven, where I and my guest host, Celine Beth Calderon, will discuss the new Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a reimagining of the Manson family murders. Celine is a documentary filmmaker currently working on a film that focuses on Ted Bundy's victims, their survivors, family members, and others, some who have never had their stories told before. It was great fun to talk to a filmmaker and Tarantino fan about this new film, and I hope you'll join us. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts. There's a link in the show notes, or just look for Let's Talk About True Crime. That's T-A-C-O, about true crime, wherever you listen to podcasts. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.